Every summer, if you can believe this, the U.S. Open Sandcastle Competition is held to determine who can create the best and most elaborate sandcastle. I had no idea until recently there was, a, there was such thing as a, a professional sand carver. I should have kept at it in my sandbox, and you too, who knows, they give away now $21,000 in annual cash prizes. Trained representatives for this annual competition are prepared to judge all the different categories. I um, looked at a number of pictures, didn't know which ones to, to put up here. I saw pictures of cars, uh, pictures of animals. I liked one, a shark head coming up out of the sand eating a person. That was kind of interesting. Uh, the most captivating category, of course, is the sand castle, the traditional carving. Each contestant at uh, this particular annual competition, they can begin building at exactly 9 a.m., and they have to conclude at 3 p.m. So they have about six hours to carve their creation. People come from all around the world to see these amazing works of art. The stipulation is you have to use whatever you can find on the seashore or beach. You can use seashells, of course, water, mud, or sand. The idea of sand carving has become so popular that competitions are now being held from California to New England over even in Japan. There's a contest taking place somewhere in the world now nearly every month of the year. There's something fascinating, something almost um, mythical at what someone is able to carve out of sand. The grand prize is usually given to that particular sandcastle that is the most elaborate and detailed, the most beautifully crafted. The grand prize, it's hard to imagine. Somebody actually did that in six hours with their crew with sand. But after all of the planning, after picking out just the right spot there on the beach, after all the design work, after all the the photographs and all the applause and all the awards, another visitor shows up at around 4 p.m. right on schedule. And he hasn't come to take pictures. He's come to look. But only briefly, he'll then leave on cue. His name is the Tide. He never fails, no matter how elaborate or beautifully carved, the Tide comes in and washes it all away. And that's part of the competition. You've got to get it done so you can be judged, you can be awarded, because the Tide is coming in and it'll wipe out all the sandcastles. found it interesting that Jesus Christ... In his Sermon on the Mount, recorded by Matthew's Gospel, beginning at chapter 5, let me just review very quickly one particular part of it for the sake of time. But the Lord used sand to illustrate wisdom. He introduces us to two custom home builders. The wise man built his house on the what? On the rock. The foolish man built his house upon the what? The sand. The rains came. Floodwaters came. Literally, the river came. The winds blew against the house, and for the foolish man it fell, and great was its fall. For the wise man the house stood, for it was built on the rock. Both of these men, by the way, built real homes. From the outside, everything would have looked the same. The difference was in their foundation. In fact, I think probably the guy who built his house on the sand, his was better looking because the guy who built his house on the rock, bedrock, had to spend more time and more money digging down until he hit rock. The other guy was from the ground up, 
probably had better tiles, a little better greenery, a little better landscaping. Jesus Christ made the application as clear as possible. He effectively said the man who built his house on the rock was a wise man because he listened to the words and lived them, obeyed them. And the foolish man, the one who built his house on the sand, he might as well have been building a sand castle because the winds came and the rain and the river and great was its fall. See, the critical issue was not just hearing the words of God, but applying those words to life. And with that one illustration, Jesus Christ defines, illustrates in that definition, wisdom. It is truth applied to life. And a few years later, his half-brother would deliver a sermon, most believe is this letter from James. It was a sermon transcribed while he was preaching it. Inspired by God, it was in fact the message and the words from God. And it's basically defining and building upon this definition as James contrasts the wisdom of God with the wisdom of man. Now he began in chapter 3, if you're not there already, and at verse 13, by basically asking a question we began to ask and answer. Is there anybody in here who is wise and understanding? If you are, you consider yourself to be that. And he goes on to say, well, here's how you can tell. He says, this will be the demonstration. These two visible mannerisms will be demonstrated in your life. Not perfectly, but you will pursue them and they will appear from time to time. A wise person will be marked by them. They are, verse 13, good behavior and gentleness of wisdom. Now we spent a lot of time, in fact all of our time in our last session, talking about what James meant by the words goodness and gentleness. These are the two visible mannerisms of people who are growing wise. Now James goes on to add a warning. Not only are there two visible mannerisms of those growing in wisdom, there are two invisible obstacles for those who are not growing in wisdom. Look at verse 14. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your heart, do not be arrogant and so lie against the truth. The truth about wisdom is that it is good and gentle. If instead of goodness and gentleness, you are hiding away these invisible characteristics, they're, they're going to effectively show up eventually. But for right now, we're being warned as they are being hidden. These are two dangerous things to be hiding. Before we look at these two obstacles, would you notice where they're hiding? James tells us, in your heart. In other words, people don't see them yet, but they're there. They're blocking growth in wisdom, and eventually they're going to come out. But for right now and right here, they are hiding in, in the heart. The heart. Now, in biblical language, the heart is the place where unbelief lives, or belief, for that matter. The heart is, is viewed in biblical language as, as the place where sin originates. It is either sin or godliness that eventually comes out and affects all of our lives. Jesus Christ rebuked those two disciples walking along the Emmaus Road who would be surprised by the re resurrection of Christ. He said to them, oh, foolish men and slow of heart 
For not believing what the prophets had to say. Not slow of mind, slow of heart. The Apostle Paul wrote, If you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved, Romans 10.9. So the heart is this hidden reservoir, so to speak, of either belief or unbelief, faith or the lack thereof. This biblical concept, by the way, gives us terminology that, that we use when we deliver the gospel, especially to, to children. We, we talk to them and, and grown-ups as well about asking Jesus Christ to come and live in your where? Heart. We're, we're not talking about a muscle pumping away in our chest. In, in, in biblical terminology, the heart is the place that represents who you really are. So in order to be saved, we're asking Jesus Christ to come into our hearts, which is tantamount to asking him to come in and reside as Savior and Lord in that place which represents who we truly are. And so I don't see any problem with asking or telling people to ask Jesus to come into their heart. The heart is not only the place where faith resides, it's a place where sin originates. Jesus Christ said, for out of the heart... Come evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witness, slanders, Matthew 15, 19. The heart is the place where one author wrote, idols are manufactured. Now here in the words of James, the heart is the place where ambitions grow and jealousies are hidden away. They're cloaked until at some point they emerge and they're made known. James writes, look again, you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your heart. That's the opposite of wisdom. And everybody in here, including myself, would say, okay, this is one of those showstoppers again because I guess I'm never going to grow in wisdom because if you knew my heart and what my heart really was like, you'd know that it is filled with jealousies and ambitions, right? In fact, that is the struggle of every day, isn't it? Battling those things I want to keep and battling myself, which I want to exalt. I want my own way. My own will, my own plans, that's my heart. Dio Moody once said, the evangelist from a generation or two ago, who said that if somebody had a business that was able to photograph the spiritual condition of our hearts, he would go bankrupt. Nobody would ever hire him. The condition of all our hearts is reflected here. But here's the key to understanding what James is referring to. If you want to stunt the growth of wisdom, if you want to stymie it, he said, you're going, to have to, you're going to have to battle these invisible obstacles that you have in your heart. And that verb, to have, is, is clarifying. Echete. It means harboring. It means nursing along. It means allowing to fester. If you allow your heart to harbor in the sense that you say to ambition and jealousy, Hey, you want a place to live? I got room in my heart. Come take up residency in my heart. I got a nice apartment for you. I'll take care of you. See, this person is not battling it. He's inviting it. He's not confessing it. He's nursing it. He's allowing it to to fester. He's allowing it, as it were, to, to simmer. He keeps it on the stove. Of his heart, like my wife on a cold wintry afternoon will pull out that big stainless steel pot and everybody in the household really loves it because she's going to make the best 
hot chocolate on the planet. And it's just going to simmer on that stove. It's just going to be hot and, and ready throughout that cold, wintry afternoon. That's the idea here. Like a pot on a stove filled with our own ambition and jealousy. We keep it simmering away. It's hot. It's ready like that hot chocolate. Walk by and if she's not looking, you dip your cup in. If she's looking, you ladle it out and you get your cup. (laughs) It's hot and ready. You see in our hearts, it's hot. It's ready. Just, just... Poke me and I'll tell you about myself. You just give me the opportunity and I'm going to turn that conversation around to me. The phrase James uses here, you got in this pot simmering away is bitter jealousy. It represents a person whose hands are full and, and they're jealous. They're, 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 they're protective. They're, they're threatened by the fact that somebody might take something away that they believe belongs to them. So then an obstacle to growing in wisdom is this spirit. A person whose life is focused on his possessions and his things and his family and his life and his job and nobody better get in my way. Wisdom is stunted with that spirit. The next phrase James describes is selfish ambition. This is the desire to be seen. It's the drive that makes somebody push their way up to the top of the food chain. This is what Jesus Christ dealt with with the Pharisees, the religious leaders. He says, everything you do, you're doing to be seen. You're doing it to be seen by men. You're giving, and while you're giving, you're sounding the trumpet. Probably a reflection of those trumpet-shaped receptacles there in the temple outside the court of women. There were 13 of them, one for every tribe, one for Gentile proselytes. You would come in and you would take your money and you'd slide it down that that trumpet-shaped receptacle. And if you had a denarii or two like that widow, it wouldn't make any noise. But if you had a bag of coins, man, you could stand there and you could sound the trumpet. Everybody went, ooh and ah. When you're fasting, rubbing ashes into their cheeks. They would fast. In fact, by the day of Christ, they were fasting on Mondays and Thursdays. Why then? That was market day. That's why. And when they were praying, Jesus said, you're praying to be seen on the street corners. Orthodox Jews prayed at 9, 12, and 3. They were arranging their schedule so that they showed up on a corner at 9, 12, or 3. Why? Because that way they could be seen from all four directions. This is the idea here of selfish ambition. In fact, the word was used in the second century for a politician running for office and gaining the office by a corrupt campaign. He somehow bought the election. Well, do Christians do that kind of thing? Do do Christians have selfish ambition? Do do Christians compete with each other? Uh, Do Christians compare business cards and job titles? You know, quietly, secretly, silently. Do Christians... Take note of neighborhoods and automobiles and designer labels. Do Christians compete at parenting and grandparenting? Are there rivalries in the the church? Do Christians try to get their way in the assembly, in the church? Not at Colonial, thank God. It's also those other churches out there, those other Christians. It's a problem. I'm preaching to them, sorry they're not here to hear it. James is saying is that Godly wisdom is developing in a person who lives without scheming. It goes on in verse 14 to announce that this kind of person 
is going to grow more and more arrogant, and he lies against the truth. That is, he justifies himself. You come along and you deliver the truth to him about something he's doing that's wrong or something he's doing that's not right or or whatever, and you'll get five reasons why it's right. Five reasons why you're wrong. In fact, who are you to tell me that I'm wrong? He lies against the truth. His wisdom growth is stunted. He's not going to go anywhere. These are the invisible obstacles to wisdom. And they come out eventually. They play out in life in living color. And that which has been nursed along and allowed to fester, that which has been fostered, that which has been simmering away, eventually escapes. And it does great damage. It does great damage to everybody in your world and and to you. And that's the warning to James. If you want to grow up in God, if you want to grow up in wisdom, you're the one that's hurt more than anybody else. Like the, the Greek legend of the athlete who was jealous of his rival's success. He had lost in the games to this particular competitor. And he was so upset and jealous And it didn't help when the town commissioned a marble statue to be crafted in the likeness of his competitor, the one who had won the games, who was now a renowned athlete. And it was unveiled in the town square eventually at a great pomp and circumstance, and the town fathers had all kinds of wonderful things, and he just seethed inwardly. But then he began slipping out at night and going to the town square with a chisel and a hammer, and as quietly as he could, he began to chisel away at the foundation of that statue. Until one night, he chiseled too much, too carelessly. That tall marble structure fell over before he could get away, and he was found dead the next morning there in the town square lying underneath the statue of his bitter rival. You want to hurt yourself? You want to hurt the larger family? Then harbor jealousy within. Secretly nurse a long ambition. Foster a me-first attitude. Compare yourself with other Christians and make sure you always end up looking better. Scheme up ways to be seen and heard. Simmer on the stove of your heart the offenses of people who get in your way. Who mess things up. And put into that pot bitter herbs that go something like this. You know, God never really does give me a fair shake. Or I should have been chosen for that. I deserve better than this. I am better than them. And wisdom's growth is pushed aside. This warning, by the way, is not to those out there. It's to us in here. Now, in chapter 3, verses 13 to 14, let me give you, in fact, you might look at your text, let me give you an expanded paraphrase before we move any further, and I'll summarize in the paraphrase what he's taught us thus far about wisdom. James is saying, I want you to grow up in wisdom and understanding. That is, I want you to apply and focus God's truth to your life. That kind of wisdom will be demonstrated by good character and gentle humility toward others. But be warned, 
The opposite of wise development of behavior is bitter jealousy and selfish ambition where you have to be first, you have to be right, you have to be the best, you have to be applauded. And anybody who comes along and tries to tell you the truth that they've observed in your life along these lines will get a reaction from you of arrogance and self-justification. End of the paraphrase. Now what James does in verse 15 is he makes sure we understand the difference between the wisdom of heaven and the wisdom of earth. Look at verse 15. This wisdom is not that which comes down from above, but is earthly, natural, and demonic. Now what James has actually been doing before arriving at verse 15 is giving us characteristics of worldly wisdom. And he'll give us five of them. And so let me give them to you for the sake of an outline or to sort of hang your mental hats along these pegs. The first one that we've already seen is that this kind of wisdom is self-promoting. It's self-promoting. The wisdom of the the world is arrogant. Verse 14. It is also, secondly, self-deceived. That is, it lies against the truth. Don't tell me the truth about myself. I'd rather stay in my state of self-deception. Self-deceived. Third, it's short-sighted. James now will say the wisdom of the world is tragically short-sighted. He says in verse 15, look there now. The wisdom of the world is earthly. It's earthly. It it simply means that the wisdom of the world shuts out God. It, It limits its focus to things on earth. It's all about the planet and nothing beyond. It never looks up, so to speak. It deals only with horizontal living. Never vertical. God who? Who cares is the attitude. By the way, it might surprise you to discover that James refers to this as wisdom. He says the world has wisdom. Isn't that surprising? It's almost as surprising as James saying earlier in chapter 2, verse 19, that demons have faith. They have faith. Demons have faith and the world has wisdom. But here's the key. God isn't the object of demonic faith. And God isn't the origin, ultimately the origin of worldly wisdom. And because, because of that, they are both doomed to fail. The tide will come in and wash them away. Now, the worldly wise man knew how to build a house. If you go back into that parable and explore it a little more carefully, maybe you'll do that at some point in your own personal study. He understood, like the wise man, he understood the principles of of engineering and construction and masonry and, and woodworking. The problem wasn't that he didn't know how to build a house. He didn't know where. He didn't know upon what to build a house that would stand. But it looked great. It was beautiful, no doubt, modern, well-built, like the other house, the wise man who built. They, they are obviously implied in Jesus' words, built in the same neighborhood because they experienced the same storm. Everybody in the neighborhood would have told the foolish man, look, man, man my house looked as nice as yours. Wow, what a beautiful house. Listen, don't ever confuse the wisdom of the majority with the wisdom of God. There is a way that seems right to a man. It seems wise. But the end thereof is the way of what? Death. So the earth looks everywhere but up. In fact, the earth really doesn't look forward. 
It doesn't look into the future revealed to us by God's wisdom, revealed in God's, God's word. The tide, according to this book, is coming. It's coming. And the, and the sandcastles of earth will not stand. The safe house is the wise life built upon the rock of God's wisdom. So James now says that wisdom, the wisdom of the world, is not only self-centered and self-deceived and short-sighted, it is also spiritually blinded. Look back at verse 15. This wisdom is natural. The word James uses for natural is the Greek word psuchikos. He gives us our word psychology, psyche. It is the study of the human condition, the natural condition of man. And depending upon your psychology professor or maybe even your psychologist, he may or she may or may not take into account the supernatural creation that you are by God himself. You are more than a psyche. You are a spirit. In other words, God's wisdom, James is saying, is not according to the psyche of man, the nature of man. God's wisdom is not natural. It is supernatural. It does not come from within us. It comes from outside of us. The natural man would say that the answers for your problems are within yourself. We would say they're not in yourself at all. In fact, the Apostle Paul uses the same word to describe the natural man who considers the things of the Spirit of God to be foolishness, and he cannot understand them because they are spiritually discerned. 1 Corinthians 2.14 The natural man, by his own intuition, God-given, knows there's something out there. There's something beyond him. He, he, he will talk about spiritual things. He'll talk about spiritual experiences. He enjoys using the word spirituality or spiritual. And so a popular phrase today would be, I'm not religious, I'm what? I'm spiritual. Whatever that means. I think I know what he means. It means that he's in tune with something outside of himself and he doesn't need a church or a system of doctrine to to tap into it. But according to God's word, he is blinded to true, genuine spirituality in Christ because his spirit that connects with God has not yet been made alive by means of Christ's atonement. Ephesians chapter 2 verse 5. So the unbeliever you meet on the street or you work with on the hallway or you go to class with, they'll talk to you about their spiritual feelings or their spiritual experiences. They're fine talking about spirituality. Just don't tell him that the origin of true and lasting heavenly wisdom and spirituality is bound up in the person of Jesus Christ. That's when he'll walk away. He'll say, you're nuts. You're out of your mind. How can you be so restrictive? You see, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so that they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. 2 Corinthians 4, verse 4. I'll give you an example. 
Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 1.23, but we preach Christ crucified to the Jews a stumbling block and to the Gentiles foolishness. It's a stumbling block to the Jews. Why? Because they don't have a crucified Messiah. They can't get over the crucifixion. That ruined everything. He's not the Messiah because he's crucified. The anointed one would not go through that. So they stumble at that. The Gentiles can't get past the crucifixion because that's just the most ridiculous thing you, you could ever think of. Gods don't come and die at the hands of men. Men die at the hands of gods. That's how it works. A suffering, abused, rejected God doesn't make sense. It's foolishness. You must be out of your mind. So you have Celsus, a second century Greek philosopher who attacked Christianity throughout his life. He wrote what happens to be the earliest known comprehensive attack on Christianity, writing just after James passed away. And he entitled this work that attacked Christianity, by the way, ironically, The True Word. He lived and wrote, he wrote that Mary had committed adultery with a Roman soldier named Panthera, a rumor that would be perpetuated through the centuries. There are people today in liberal pulpits who believe that. He went on to say that Mary then was divorced because of her adultery and She raised her son, whom she named Jesus, in Egypt. And that's where Jesus learned sorcery in the dark arts. Then as a young man, he came back to his homeland where he presented himself as a god and substantiated it by performing miracles that were in reality enabled by occultic powers. In other words, Jesus is is an Egyptian-trained sorcerer who got carried away with his claims to be godlike and ended up dead. That should be the end of the story. And Celsus would attack Christians by saying, and I quote, these Christians worship a dead man, end quote. But think about it. Apart from the Spirit of God opening your eyes and the truth of the gospel, it is absurd. There's nothing more absurd to the natural man than the belief that the blood of a crucified God could actually atone for and remove sin and secure salvation and give everlasting life. You must be out of your mind. No wonder Paul wrote the preaching of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. 1 Corinthians 1.18 And what is the church doing today? In our culture, more and more, they're simply taking away the gospel. They're taking out parts of it that they don't like. Related to the atonement of Christ, who was crucified for the payment of sin and the satisfaction of the wrath of God the Father and for the salvation of sinners who believe. They don't want anything with that. And so the emergent church, one of the latest self-absorbed movements. And Brian McLaren, one of the leaders, refers to the crucifixion as cosmic child abuse. The church is removing the gospel from the gospel. So you have nothing left. Illustrated well in something I read this past week, a church was made a beautiful stone facing with arches and and pillars, the arch that led into the front doors of the chapel had 
carved into the stone the words, We preach Christ crucified. And so they did for generations. But ivy, slow in its growth but persistent, grew up one side of the arch. And it came up around until it covered the last word, until all you could see etched in the stone is, We preach Christ. And so they did. They preached Christ, the ideal man, Christ, the moral example, Christ, the good teacher, Christ, the positive thinker, Christ, the one in whom you tap into so that you can get whatever you want in life if you have enough faith. And then the ivy continued to grow until it simply said, we preach. Why bother with Christ? So the church preaches humanitarianism and economics and social issues and book reviews. They preach, but their preaching has long since ignored the cross of Christ until they finally come to the conclusion, why have anything to do with Christ at all? Ladies and gentlemen, those churches are nothing more than sandcastles. And the wisdom upon which they are built will not stand against the holy tide. And the tide is coming. The tide is coming. The hosts of heaven will one day say this to Christ. In the book of Revelation, the believers will say, You, Lord, you are worthy. Why? Because you were slain and you purchased us by your blood. Evidently, the crucifixion matters at the end of time. And then the next phrase, which is built upon the crucifixion, the atoning work of Christ, gives this glorious promise. And you have made believers to be a kingdom of priests to our God and they will reign with you on the earth. Listen, after the judgment of God is swept away, the wisdom of this world and those whose lives have been built upon the wisdom of this world have been judged. The wisdom of God will run rampant through the earth like the waters of a flood. And we with him will reign. Well, how do you know if you have wisdom from the world? Well, James is telling us, be warned, the wisdom of the world is self-centered, self-deceived, short-sighted, spiritually blinded. And one more, James adds, it is demonic, or we could call it self-exalting, because that's what the father of demons did, exalting himself and his throne, attempting to, to reign over God himself. And mankind, in its disbelief, does the same thing. I will reign over God. I will hold God accountable, not the other way around. So demonic, in fact, you could translate it demon-inspired. The wisdom of the world is devilish rather than divine. The idea is it is self-exalting to its own destruction. If your wisdom is demon-inspired, it leads you to exalt yourself, to reject the cross, to justify your sin, to trust in yourself. It leads you away from repentance and from 
the Savior who is Christ, it leads you into self-sufficiency and self-promotion and self-centeredness and self-deception and short-sightedness and spiritual blindness. No matter how smart or beautiful or modern or clever it is. In fact, it, it struck me, has it ever occurred to you that the first time the word wise appears in Scripture. It appears in the Garden of Eden where Satan has successfully deceived Eve into believing that disobeying God, rejecting God, and eating that forbidden fruit would make her wise. And it did. The wisdom of the world She became wise to her nakedness and Adam with her. She became wise to sin and rebellion. She grasped with this new wisdom her own fear now of God so that she and Adam ran and hid. And what would follow? Lying and blame and treachery and murder. So James basically says the same thing in verse 16. Look there. When you exalt yourself, when you follow your own way that is your own ambition, when you stir that pot and that's all you ever stir, when you follow the wisdom of the world, here's what's going to follow. You. Disorder and every evil thing. Disorder is a word that speaks of Confusion. You can understand it with the word anarchy. It's chaos. James' phrase, every evil thing, refers to corruption. Follow the world's wisdom and what do you get? Confusion? We don't know right from wrong. We don't know up from down. We're left to ourselves. I guess whatever's true for me is true. Whatever's true for you is true, even though they totally contradict. I guess that's wise. Confusion and corruption. Every wicked and sinful thing becomes possible and even acceptable when the wisdom of God is abandoned and rejected and ignored. Couldn't think of but of our own culture, which is abandoning God's wisdom as quickly as a schoolboy can run from a bully. So today, and I just pulled up a few statistics as I did a little surfing pages and pages. I'll give you a few paragraphs. Here's our culture. Eighth grade boys are playing violent video games now an average of 23 hours a week. And you think, where's the wisdom of the parents in that? Maybe the more telling statistic is that for the first time in American history, for the first time, based on the census, for the first time in American history, less than one half of U.S. households consist of married couples. In other words, we've reached the point where it's tilted now. There are more couples cohabiting and raising children than marrying. This year... Nearly 3 million teenagers will become infected with a a sexually transmitted disease. 3 million American teenagers. 
should we sound a warning? I went to one site put out by CNN Health, and the warning gave all the warnings, you know, how to, how to be as safe as possible, and the last line was, good luck, have fun, and be safe. And to the world, that's wise. You compare, however, the warnings and the international panic caused by the flu. You remember H1N1? You remember that? H1N1? People shown in different countries wearing masks and, and gloves. That same CNN Health report said that here's how many people died from that specific flu virus. That specific flu virus worldwide, 145. Now, don't misunderstand. Those warnings were appropriate. One life is worth all the effort. But consider the lack of warning in that syphilis will infect 12 million new people this year worldwide. It will take the lives of tens of thousands of people. In fact, one person every two weeks will die of syphilis in America. Have you heard a warning? I missed that CNN report. I didn't read the article out of the News and Observer. Chlamydia will infect 90 million people this year worldwide. Gonorrhea will infect 30 million people this year worldwide. Many of these sexually transmitted diseases, though treatable, are incurable and will set the stage for cancer, blindness, infertility, heart disease, and death. But not a warning. Why? Because this is a moral issue. That's why. And you don't touch a moral issue with your prudish Victorian standard if you do your intolerant. Just good luck. Ladies and gentlemen, the tide is coming in. I visited one country in Africa. The population so massively infected by HIV in 20 years, it will not exist. And still the teenagers line up at night and choose their partner. They have nothing to live for. The solution is not be safe. The solution is be saved. At the same time, the gospel is being denigrated in our culture. The only thing that has any hope fastest growing religion in terms of percentages in America today is Wicca, a neo-pagan religion that is sometimes referred to as witchcraft. We are now being castigated by the secular media in new terminology. One recent movie likened Christians to Islamic jihadists bent on world domination. This past year, a woman in Houston, Texas, was ordered by local police to stop handing out gospel tracts to children who on Halloween knocked on her door. Now we could go page after page of all the darkness. It happens to be a wonderful opportunity to know the light. The darker it becomes, the more brilliant the light of one individual. But the world in its darkness is growing more and more confused and more and more corrupt. The tide 
is coming in. Let me share with you as we close the story of my parents. I shared this with our greenhouse classes, just about every one of them, I think. I think it illustrates well this building, the life that we ought to build on the wisdom of God. My, my mother and father bought a couple acres. They're still serving full-time as missionaries. They bought a couple acres out in the, out in the country. It's no longer country. And they built a small one-story ranch home. They still live there. They began building it when I left for my freshman year of college. They moved. They did tell me where they moved to, which was nice of them, so I could come home. I came home just in time to help my father that summer. Because of their attempts to save all the money they could, my father and a contractor friend who had the licenses, a believer, built the house. My father did as much as he could, and I came home in time in July to put on those long sleeve shirts and get under the house and unroll the insulation. It was a great bonding time between my father and I. That's, that's, that's a joke. All right, well, anyhow, when the, flooring, when the flooring was finished and the bricklayers were coming in to, to put in the, the hearth and the fireplace, they worked one afternoon and then they left, and my father and I came over. You walked into the garage, into the little kitchen area. You looked through a little eating area, the counter, into the family room. And the wall where the fireplace was being built. And it had been built, the hearth, and it was about five and a half feet high. And my dad and I looked across and looked at that and just stared for a while and then just leaned. I said, Dad, do you think that's crooked? He looked at it and he said, Stephen, I thought the same thing. We called the contractor. He came and looked at it and he said, it's crooked. Had to tear it down. So we had the crew tear it down to the hearth. A couple of days later, my father and I came in, walked in through the garage into the into the kitchen we looked directly across to the family room they built it up back up about five and a half feet high this time and we both stared at it and i said dad is it crooked to you and he said it's crooked i'm not a builder and sure enough we called the contractor and he said he looked at it, he said it's crooked he had him tear it down in fact they tore out the hearth as well and started at the wooden floor a couple days later, my dad and I came over, marched in through the garage, marched up in there, looked right away. It was finished, all the way up to the ceiling. And it was straight. I overheard my father talking to the contractor, and he asked him, what happened? And he said, the contractor told him, he said, well, you know, Keith, we're trying to save every penny we can, which means we use the lowest bidder. And they were a young, inexperienced crew. And my dad said, well, what happened the third time? The contractor said, oh, that time I stayed behind and worked with them. And we got it right. Beloved, try as you might. You will never build your life straight and true on your own. That's why God, in his grace, has given us an inspired contractor called his word and a helper, his spirit, that applies the word in our lives so that we apply it correctly and we build lives that are right. His wisdom is the only way to build. In fact, his wisdom is the only true foundation upon which we are to build our lives. The tide will eventually come in. The only place to stand The only place to build your life upon is upon the written word, this book, and the living word, who is Jesus Christ. 
Everything else is sinking what? Sand. Apart from the wisdom of heaven, everything else is like building sandcastles before the coming of the tide. So if you do not yet believe, I commend to you the gospel of Jesus Christ, which is Christ crucified, buried, and resurrected. If you believe in Jesus Christ, I commend to you the wisdom of James, who says that now as believers we still have the battles of selfish ambition and and rivalry in our hearts. We will struggle with our hearts. We'll struggle with those things we'll want to to foster and embrace and stir and, and keep hot and ready. We are to live distinctively different kinds of lives in our darkening culture, and they will differ in this. As we grow in wisdom, we'll grow away from that which is self-centered and self-deceived and short-sighted and spiritually blinded and self-exalting. This is the encouragement and challenge from James. These are his words to the wise. If you bow your head for just a moment, perhaps today you are that individual who's been following worldly wisdom. It's all natural and earthly. It makes sense. The gospel has been foolishness. It's been something to experiment with. It's been something to look into, not something to trust. Maybe you'll be moving today by means of the Spirit of God in your heart toward that which says Jesus Christ was more than a good man and a good teacher and a good model. He was indeed the Christ, the Son of the living God. If we can help you in that discovery and help you know how to ask or invite Jesus Christ into your heart, the core of who you really are, We're available throughout the week for appointments. I'm so delighted when people call, and as they've done in recent days, to say, I want to follow up on that invitation, or I want to talk to you. And we've had people come to faith in recent days who've said yes to Jesus Christ. Maybe that's you. We would commend to you belief in Christ while there is still breath, before the tide in your own life comes. If you're a Christian, like me, we have been deeply challenged and convicted once again with who we are and how desperately we need the wisdom of God. So right where you stand with fresh commitment and rededication, say, Lord, let's deal with those things in my heart. You know what they are. I want to grow up just a little more this week in the wisdom of heaven. Thank you for giving me this book to test the spirits. Thank you for giving me an objective standard to test that which is really not true and that which is. Help me to adjust my thinking, my feeling, my planning to this standard. 